I don't know about you, but the question, how many times should you forgive, I, I, I would rather uh, the answer of the 77 as opposed to the kid who said once, maybe twice. <laughs> like, whoa, wow, watch out for him. But anyway, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then I want to ask you to read this rest with me. Um, go ahead and say it, and I want to do what he did. He called, say it with me, he called a little child to him. in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. All right, and then let's keep going. In Mark, the book of Mark, we read this, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So I've got two brothers up here with me. Do you guys want to preach the sermon for me? Maybe, maybe, maybe next time, a little more practice or warning. But, um, you know, what I, what I want you to do is picture the children you know, you know, looking at these two boys and others that you know, and think about what Jesus is saying here. There is so much we can learn from children. And I want us, over the next six weeks, to look at what God might be saying to us and what He wants us to understand about how to live life differently than we typically do as grown-ups and to have faith like a child. Um, th th this is Everett and, and Sawyer. W will you tell them thank you? Put your hands together for them for coming up here and being with me. You guys can go set my mom again. You know, there are always two sides to every coin, and what we just read, of course, is very clear. I mean, Jesus' words, it's pretty impossible to misunderstand what He's saying there. And yet, Scripture also teaches us in other places that we're not to be childish. Paul, the apostle, put it like this. He said in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. So, we have to look at Scripture and go, okay, so what does God want us to understand about, about children? And, and what is His point here? I think clearly the point is, is that He wants us to be childlike, but not childish. And over the next six weeks, I want us to discuss and look at some ways where we can differentiate between those two ideas and look at some specific ways that I think the Lord wants us to learn from children. 
and remember and go back to or think about and think of these boys or other children that you know and go, you know what, Lord, I want to be, as you have directed, I want to be a person who has faith like a child. Faith like a child. Because there's so much we can learn from children. To kind of set up our series, let me share with you a few thoughts. You know, um, children occupied a precarious position in the Hellenistic society of the first century within which most of the New Testament was written. Sometimes children were loved, and sometimes they were exploited. And it really kind of depended on how they were perceived as benefiting the family. You see, Roman law of that day gave the father absolute power over his family, including the power of life and death. As late as A.D. 60, a father could say the word just like that, no questions asked, and his child could be put to death. But God, through His Holy Word, has taught us over and over that children are a gift from the Lord and that they should be loved and cared for. And, and yet here, in what we just read in the passage on the screen, while apparently a number of cheerful families stood there, you know, waiting in line, holding toddlers or babies and, you know, having other little kids maybe run around as they were in line waiting to have Jesus look them in the eye and probably put them on his lap and touch them and bless them. And parents were expecting and eager and looking forward to that. Jesus' disciples were like, whoa, hey, no, no. Put the kibosh on that. We don't have time for such things. They stopped it like that. Now, the question is, why did they do that? If Jesus, I mean, if God's Word teaches over and over that children are a blessing, why would they do that? Well, can I tell you, I think it's because they were protecting Jesus. I mean, from their perspective, they were helping. They were protecting Him. They knew that Jesus was under pressure. Wherever He went, He found conflict, whether it be with demons or whether it be with religious leaders who had uh, selfish motives or whether it be with other grown-ups with other issues and situations. And, and, of course, if that wasn't enough, there was always crowds. There were always crowds pressing in to get something from Him threatening to literally crush him at times, it appeared. So this matter of blessing children that these parents were wanting from Jesus was, from the disciples' perspective, just one more drain on the Savior. And besides, they were just children. They're just little kids, you know. They are of little importance. They cannot debate. They cannot contribute to the cause. And so the disciples, again, protected Jesus and, and put a stop to it and said, take those kids. No, and even rebuked them, rebuked the people, scolded them. But in verse 14, as we just read, Jesus saw what was happening, and the Bible says he was indignant, indignant. You know, the Greek word translated here, indignant, occurs only one time in the whole New Testament, only one time. It's right here. And it comes from a combination of two original words, one word for the word much and another for the word to grieve. So Jesus was in this moment, and this is the only time the word was used, he was much grieved. He was indignant. He was very unhappy about how this all was playing out. So what can we learn from all this? What do we need to learn from this? What does God want us to understand? As we get into this series about faith like a child, I would tell you, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus loves children, and so should we. 
He loves children. Those of you, I see David, I see others of you that work downstairs with the kids. You love children. Jesus, those of you who are parents, you love your children. Jesus loves children as well, and so should we. Jesus, after all, was a child. I mean, he was born a real baby. He was a real toddler at one point. He was a young child like these that came up. He, he was a preteen with all the preteen issues. He became a teenager with all the teenage issues and uh, all of that before becoming a grown-up. So Jesus loved children, and so should we. Oh, and think about this. Many of his miracles involved children. I, just let me give you three examples. The, uh, in John chapter 4, we can read about the nobleman's little son. In Mark chapter 9, we re read about the demonized son of the man at the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 5, we read about Jairus' daughter. Over and over, we read that Jesus, as God and as man, loved children. And so should we. But secondly, I think from this passage and kind of as a backdrop for our whole series, we need to see that Jesus affirms and respects the nature and spirituality of children. Let me say that again. I want you to think about it. Jesus affirms and respects the nature and spirituality of children. When he said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, he's making clear that children are the ones with the hearts that he is closest to. I mean, he loves children. He loves so many things about children. So how sobering then are his words when he says, do not, sternly, do not hinder them. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never, circle that or think that, keep that in your head, never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the word translated there, never, or sometimes translated not enter the kingdom of heaven, never enter the kingdom of heaven, that word never is very, very strong. New Testament scholar William Lane comments like this. He says, he says, this solemn pronouncement is directed at the disciples, but has pertinence for all because it speaks of the condition for entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, no one will get into the kingdom of God unless he or she receives God's salvation like a child. No one. Wow. No one. So, how should we apply all this? How should it affect the way we live lives as grown-ups today? Well, for one, coming to Him as a child does not infer innocence. I think anybody who's spent any time with a toddler or a two-year-old, you, you, you know how that works. I mean, there's, a, there's beauty in them and, and a lot of wonderful things, but I wouldn't necessarily say innocence. Again, He's not advocate, advocating childishness either. Childlikeness is not the same as childishness. I think the point Jesus is making here is that every child who has ever lived, regardless of race or culture or background, I think every single child embodies something that each one of us should as well, and that is the word or the concept dependency. Dependency. More than anything, I think Jesus wants us to trust Him the way children trust to acknowledge how completely dependent upon Him we truly are. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, makes very clear that how, how important trust and faith is. The Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God. What's the word? Without faith it is what? Impossible 
Don't forget that. Impossible to please God. Children are quick to trust, to act in faith, and I think God wants us to learn to be so as well, to develop faith like a child. Now, we all know that children are also often naive, so quick to trust that they can easily be led astray, right? We see people that exploit that, and Jesus warns very sternly against that. In the very next verse where we left off in Matthew 18, verse 6, he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Pretty hard to misunderstand what he means by that. Very clear. So don't ever, ever lead a child astray is the point. But also, I think we need to remember his point is also don't ever, ever fail to remember that we can learn from children and grow to be more like them in a number of ways. You know, we adults tend to be so much slower to trust, don't we? We tend to think, I don't know if you're this way, but I think we tend to think that we need to know everything about a thing until we would ever consider trusting that thing, right? That's just the way we operate, whereas kids are not so much that way. You know, if you love them, meet a need, look them in the eye and express genuine affection or love or whatever, they'll trust you like that, whereas us, not so much. A lot of skepticism, a lot of hesitation. They trust wholeheartedly. We trust very hesitantly. And Jesus said that we should believe in Him with faith like a child. We, I don't think we have to understand all the mysteries of the universe to first believe and trust and follow the Lord. It should be enough to know that God loves us and has provided forgiveness for us. And that should be it. And we say, okay, Lord, sign me up. Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to proceed from here? As children are utterly dependent upon grown-ups, we need to recognize that we are utterly dependent upon God. We may think ourselves self-sufficient. Many of us do that. We even pride ourselves. We boast about it. Yeah, I don't need anybody else in this or that way. I pretty well have this covered. I, you know, whatever. We boast about being self-sufficient in various ways, and yet the truth is, without Jesus, we are absolutely lost. We are nothing without Him, just like a child is lost on their own. You know, a realization of helplessness naturally fosters humility. That's what Jesus, I think, was talking about when He again said, let me read it again, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly, humble position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, do you desire to be held in Christ's arms? Do you? Do you desire to be held in the arms of Jesus? Do you desire for Him to bless you and love you and smile upon you? Then I want to encourage you over the next six weeks to listen closely to the message of Scripture, of, of God, when He talks to us about what faith like a child can look like and to learn to be more and more like a child in certain specific ways. And today, in particular, I want to talk about what it means to be quick to forgive. Now, I don't have time to go into great detail, but over, over the next few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about what God's Word says about forgiveness. Now, children can initially, we all know this, they can get upset, you know, just like that, right? I mean, any little thing, and temper tantrum or whatever, they can get upset in a heartbeat and get very angry at the drop of a hat. But generally, they also can forgive just like that. 
and from, go from one moment of being upset to the next moment, okay, I'm sorry, I forgive you, or whatever. Let's hug it out and play and forget all about it and move right on and let it go. Shouldn't we be more like children in that way? Learning how to let go, you know, what's the longest you've seen a child hold a grudge? What, maybe three minutes? I don't know, something like that. Whereas a lot of us as adults are, have mastered the angle of holding on to grudges for hours, days, even decades in some cases. And in that respect, we need to learn from children. Faith like a child is one thing that we need to learn from them. Uh, forgiveness is one thing we need to learn from them. Consider the children you know. Think about how quick they are to forgive. And let's allow the Lord to lead us in this respect to grow. Now, Scripture says a lot about it. I only have time to summarize briefly, but let me share with you four things we can learn from God's Word about forgiveness. If you're filling in the blanks, here you go. Number one is this. Genuine forgiveness is essential. Essential is the key word. Essential for the Christian. Jesus' most famous prayer teaches this. He said in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, He said, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive those who trespass against us as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know that phrase, I don't know about you, but that phrase has often frightened me. If you really think it through, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What I'm saying, if I say that prayer is, God, please treat me the way I'm treating others in the context of forgiveness. Ooh, what if I'm holding on to some kind of anger or bitterness or grudge? You know, two verses later, uh, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says this, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. Forgiveness is essential. Essential. We need to understand that. Uh, a scholar, a man named John Scott wrote this, or Stott, he wrote this. He wrote, this certainly does not mean that our forgiveness earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true repentance is a forgiving spirit. So I think having faith like a child is, for one thing, being quick to forgive. Now, you can't have one without the other. Jesus was not saying, hey, hey, friends, hey, people, let me give you a little suggestion. If you want to live a good life and you want to enjoy life, you might want to consider the notion of being quicker to forgive. He didn't say that. He teaches throughout Scripture that being a forgiving person is an essential element to following the Lord and walking with Him. Okay, number two is this. Genuine forgiveness is a process. If you're filling in the blanks, there you go. It's a process that takes time. You know, it would be nice if forgiveness were just like throwing a switch, that we just, you know, like that on the fly said, yes, I, I, I'm one and done. I, I forgive and forget and move on and let it go. Like water off a duck's back. I don't even have to think about it again. But that's not the way it often works for many of us, is it? Forgiveness takes time. Think about this. I heard somebody say this in a different context, but I think it applies to forgiveness perfectly. They said in the context of finances, they said, you know, a huge debt is usually repaid on the installment plan. A huge debt is usually repaid on the installment plan. And I would contend that forgiveness is much the same way. It often takes time. There's a man named Lewis Smeeds, a Christian author and speaker. He's one of many people who's written about various stages in the context of forgiveness. And in brief, uh, he goes into a lot of de de detail, but in short, he says this. There are four, at least, stages 
The first stage is that of hurt. If somebody causes you deep pain, you don't just forget it and move on. It hurts. You feel it. You know, um, you, you weep. You might even pound your fist into the wall or wake up in the middle of the night unable to sleep, filled with anger or whatever. But you hurt. There's pain. And actually, the second one is the one of anger. He talks about anger and hate. And uh, you say, well, wow, pastor, you know, that's not very godly. I didn't say it was godly. I didn't say it was right. I'm just saying it's a common thing in our human relationships to go through these stages. And a lot of times you go from hurt to anger, even sometimes hatred, where you're filled with rage. You know, in this stage, you can't shake the memory of how much you were hurt. It feels impossible to wish that other person well. Sometimes you want that person to hurt uh, the way that you have hurt. And so you look for, you, you try to devise and come up with ways to get even, to show them you know, maybe you construct a letter to wound them or you think of informing their friends of what a louse they are or at least pouting in front of them to make them feel how awkward and know how upset you are with them. You know, it's like the little boy who um, got disciplined by his dad one day, didn't like that, of course. And that night when his mom and dad both came in to pray with him before going to bed, the little boy said his short prayer and he, his prayer went like this, Dear God, please bless Mommy and Grandpa and Grandma and my Uncle Billy and, uh, and my little brother. Amen. And then he looked at his dad and he said, I hope you noticed you weren't in there. <laughs> kind of like that. It's the stage a lot of times we go through. We find a way, if possible, and again, I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying this is what we often do. We find a way to try to wound the person who wounded us. According to Mr. Smeeds, it is not till we get to the third of the four stages that healing can begin to happen. Healing can come then. You know, if you have a flesh wound, the pain goes away. If it's a minor flesh wound, it can go away in just a matter of days. Miraculously, the body can heal itself. Now, the more serious the wound, the longer it takes, right? Emotional wounds are much the same and in many cases take much longer, actually. Um, the longer it takes for them to heal and the easier it is for you to feel hurt again. You know, a number of years ago, I, I, was, uh, I rode mountain bikes a lot. i not like some of the guys in here that are so incredible on their bike, but, but I rode a lot. And I had a really bad accident one time, and I, I cracked, uh, almost broke my hip all the way through, and the leg turned black and blue all the way up and down. And, and, um, and anyway, still today, I can feel that. If I get on the floor to play with a kid or my son or whatever... Uh, or, or even just kind of bump it. I mean, if I do that, I can feel it. I can still feel it. And that was 15 years ago. Some wounds take a long time to heal. Now, you might tend to be more forgiving than most, but still, if somebody touches that wound on you, you probably still feel it, maybe even years, decades later. You know, maybe a song touches it, or a certain word or a phrase or, or memory can touch it. And you feel it again. You'll hurt again. And you'll find yourself needing to forgive again. The point is that it takes a process. It is a process of time to forgive. And it's the third stage, according to this author, that forgiveness begins to take place. But eventually, if you will allow the Lord to help you, and there's a lot of detail there, but if you're willing to allow the Lord to help you, the pain can lessen and you can heal. You can get to a place of smiling and talking and laughing and and not having to pretend and fake it and actually feel set free again. It can happen. 
Now, the fourth stage is coming together, or as he calls it, reconciliation. Now, let me make something very clear, and that is that it only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two to reconcile. And so while this should always be our goal, it is not always possible. God tells us in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, clearly inferring that it's not always possible. So you cannot always reconcile, but you can always, always, with God's help, get to at least a place of forgiving the other person, even if they will not be in relationship with you. Think again of the children you know, how, how they can be so upset and hurt, crying, whatever, with someone about someone at one moment, and then a moment later be like, okay, all right, I'm done. Let's hug and pray. All right, now we're best friends again. You know, Reconciliation is easy for children. And I'm not saying it's easy for us, but it should be a goal. It should be something we say, Lord, help me to develop that. Now, reconciliation is often facilitated by things like an apology, repentance, like honesty, hard conversations. Sometimes he doesn't apologize or she doesn't come back. And sometimes you have to go through some of this process all alone, and sometimes reconciliation never does happen, but at least you can forgive with God's help if you choose to. The point I'm trying to make is that forgiveness for human beings, even good Christian people, often takes time. It is not easy. Just because we're Christians does not make it easy. Number three, genuine forgiveness begins with prayer. It begins with prayer. Now, you may need to also confront there may need to be tough conversations. You may need to talk to others that you admire and, and look up to spiritually that can help you. You may need to express kindness to that person that hurts you. But the place to begin is prayer. If you pray every day for those that owe a debt to you, that you feel have hurt you in some way, I tell you what, it goes a long way toward releasing that bitterness. Friends, I'll tell you this. I have a lot of faults. If you know me well, you know that. If you don't know me, I'll t take my word for it. I have a lot of faults. But I can stand before you as your pastor and honestly tell you I don't have any bitterness toward anybody. Now, there are people that have hurt me. There are people that, honestly, I don't trust very much. There are people that hold bitterness toward me that won't speak to me anymore. Um, but there is nobody, and I say this with all sincerity, there is nobody that I hold a grudge against, that I have bitterness toward, that I hate, that I'm harboring unforgiveness toward. And I think that's where God wants us all to learn to be. Now, part of the reason that I'm able to say that is because when I pray the Lord's Prayer, you know, when I come to the point of, Lord, forgive Forgive me, you know, give me my daily bread, but then also, Lord, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. I often think of and even pray out loud for, or at least in my mind, pray out loud with the names of the people that there's some kind of a butting of heads with, and I pray for them because I have found that it is very hard to stay mad at someone when you pray for them by name, especially on a daily basis. It is really hard to stay mad, even if you want to. So I try to do that, and I encourage you to do the same. You know, when I started praying for these people, I often remember and also pray, add to my prayer, Lord, you know me. You know I've done similar things. And so, God, as you forgive me, will you help me to learn to be forgiving toward others as well and to develop this faith-like-a-child tendency to be quick to forgive? All right, let me show you one more thing. Point four, if you're taking the notes, would be this. Forgiveness results in emotional freedom 
Freedom and victory. Freedom and victory. You know, Satan would love to deceive us into thinking that if we forgive, we lose. You know, the one who is offended is the one who wins. That's his lie to us. He loves to try to tell you that. But actually, it's the exact opposite that is true. Forgiveness results in emotional freedom and victory. And if you harbor hatred, you lose. That's the way it really works. Resentment does not hurt the person that you are angry with nearly as much, usually nothing, but it doesn't hurt them nearly as much as it hurts you. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews, see to it that no bitter root grows up in you. No bitter root. Don't let it grow up and take hold because it will destroy you from the inside out. It's like, it's like carrying around a cup and filling it up with acid. You got a cup full of acid and you just carry it around waiting to dump it on the person that you're upset with. You're looking for that opportune time, but as you carry around the cup, the acid eats through the cup and pretty soon it's dripping down your arm and maybe other parts of you and it's destroying you. It is eating you alive. It's scarring and hurting you, not the other person. And it's eroding away at your happiness, your contentment, your personality, your very relationship with God. But if you'll dump it out, if you'll let it go and trust the Lord with it, lay it at His feet before it can ruin your cup and therefore run down your arm and all that, then you can hold that cup up toward heaven and say, Oh, dear God. Would you fill my cup? Fill it up, Lord, and, and let it overflow, in fact, with your goodness, with your love and your mercy and your grace. And if you'll do that, suddenly you'll often find freedom and victory, and your cup will overflow with blessing and goodness. That is why Mother Teresa said, forgiveness will set you free. She nailed it. Forgiveness will set you free. You know, we read about an overflowing cup in the famous Psalm 23, a chapter that many of you probably have memorized. You're at least familiar with it. hear it all the time in various settings. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In verse 4, we read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Familiar words, right? Most of us have heard that. We know it well. Well, verse 5 continues, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, think about that. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Do you think forgiveness is at the top of the list when you're sitting down with your enemy? It's not the number one thing on most people's minds when you have a table set before you in the presence of your enemy. But if we will take all of Psalm 23 and keep it in our mind, listen to just some of the other imagery it's a package deal. God's Word is always a package deal, the whole context. And if we will understand that, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and think back to the rest of that chapter, you know, and recognize that He wants to guide us along right paths for His name's sake. And that if we will learn to trust Him and do things His way, He indeed does lead us beside, what does it say? Quiet waters. Refresh our souls. And he goes on to say, you anoint my head with oil and my cup. What? What is, happens to my cup? It what? It overflows. It overflows with goodness and mercy and love that will follow us all the days of our lives. 
Let me close with this. A man named John Beckett in his book called Loving Monday wrote that um, back when he was a child, he had just turned 13, he was enjoying a special vacation with his dad and with his Uncle Harold at Uncle Harold's cabin up in Canada, some 600 miles from their home. And here's how he wrote it in his book. He said, but trouble found us when Uncle Harold got the notion that I, his younger nephew, might like to look at his favorite playing cards which featured naked women. Well, Dad walked into the room at that moment. Seeing what was taking place, he exploded. Here was his almost 60-year-old brother exposing his young 13-year-old son to pornography. Pack your bags, John. We're going home, my dad exploded. A few minutes later, we crawled into our small cedar boat and Dad started the outboard motor and we pulled away from the dock. He continued, he said, as I got in the boat with my dad, I bit my lip and choked back tears because I was so disappointed. Why did my special outing with Dad and Uncle Harold have to end this way? Why did it have to end at all? Well, we rode silently away, but a hundred yards from shore, Dad cut the power to the motor and grimly said, John, we're going to go back. Apparently, he'd been thinking and praying. I thought maybe he'd just forgotten something, but when Dad pulled up to the dock, Uncle Harold came running down from the cabin to meet us. And I could see in Dad's face this intense, righteous anger that had met with an equally powerful and deep love for his brother. Dad was coming back to make things right. Too many years, too many shared experiences, too much was at stake to allow this incident to become a festering wound that would never heal. They, they embraced. A few words I could not hear were spoken, and that was all that was needed to come to an understanding. Never again would Uncle Harold violate his brother's care for his brother's son. Never again would he underestimate Dad's intense sense of right and wrong. Dad's passion for his beliefs had caused him to risk fracture with his oldest brother, yet without compromising that passion, he found a place for reconciliation and forgiveness and lived out the notion of a childlike faith in being quick to forgive. John goes on to explain that as a child, he developed a deeper and deeper faith and understanding of what forgiveness should look like and never let it go. And it affected not only the way he treated others um, as a child, but as he became an adult, a father, a husband, it changed the way he looked at things. My point as we close is this. Do you need to find a place of reconciliation? Do you need to develop more of a childlike faith in the context of forgiveness? Has somebody wounded you and hurt you? And have you had a hard time letting go? Is it eating at you from the inside out and slowly destroying you? Well, I want to invite you as we stand. Will you stand with me? And as we sing, I want to, I want to pray and I want to invite you to remember that it all starts with getting on your knees and praying something like this. Oh, dear God, let's all bow our heads and pray this together. Dear God, Forgive me my sins. They are many. Lord, you know them. They are many. But forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. And Lord God, please help me to remember to live out a childlike faith 
to live out Ephesians 4.29 that says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave me. Oh, Lord, help me to remember that, to live that out, and to let you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, break the chains and help me to learn to trust you and walk with you and let you forgive me, but help me to learn to forgive others as well. So as we sing and worship you now, Lord, if there are those that need to make decisions and come, I pray that you place that on their heart. Help them to come and maybe to kneel, to, to pray, to talk with and pray with somebody else, to figuratively lay it at the foot of the cross, but in one way or the, or the other, to trust you enough to say, God, I give it to you, and I want to trust you and let you help develop in me a faith like a child. And we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.